This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 48, War by Other Means. Last time, we finished the Book of Virata, the symbolic, if not actual, midpoint of the Mahabharata. Despite the serious and tragic tone of the stories, the Book of Virata nevertheless has a carnival-esque feel to it, with the brothers wearing flamboyant disguises and the hint of marital infidelity. Arjun's coming out from his disguise was somewhat alarming. Suddenly, he revealed himself as a virile champion who had been living among the king's women for a full year. Virato is hardly going to raise a stink over it, though. What could he do in the way of punishment anyway? Arjun had just single-handedly driven off an entire army. The king's solution was to simply bury the problem. Polygamy provided the easiest way out. Make Katara Arjun's wife, and who cares if a little premarital canoodling had taken place. For our super-virtuous Pandavas, however, this wasn't good enough. Arjun insisted he had been true to his claims and to his vows, and had never touched the girl. So Arjun came up with an even better idea. Marry the girl to his son, Abhimanyu. There was no self-respecting Hindu alive who would have an affair with the girl and then marry her to his own son. This would be an awful form of incest and would destroy the honor of the entire family. Thus, by raising the stakes like this, Arjun demonstrated his own virtue regarding his dance student, Uttara. As part of this great coming out, the Pandavas set up their base of operations at Virata's second city, Upaplavya. Their main allies soon arrived, along with two full Aksahinis. An Aksahini is the equivalent of an army or division of troops which consists roughly of 22,000 elephants, 65,000 horses, and 100,000 foot soldiers. Thus the allies came prepared for war. Krishna also provided the brothers with sufficient wealth and servants to maintain their status as royal princes. The wedding itself was held at Virata's palace, and following the festivities, the allies gathered together to decide what the Pandava's next move should be. As we've seen many times before, Krishna was the first to speak. He gave a rousing speech, rehashing the injustices perpetrated against the Pandavas and praising their virtue and restraint in the face of such hardship. He concluded with the recommendation that an ambassador be sent to Hastinapur to find out what the Kauravas meant to do next. The next to speak was Krishna's brother Balram. Again, as we've seen him do before, Balram revealed his sympathy for the Kauravas. He agreed that they ought to send a negotiator, but he also counseled restraint. After all, he said, Yudhishthira was not completely blameless in all of this. He should have known better than to stake his kingdom. And why did he agree to play against someone so much better at the game than he? Thus, Balram agreed that negotiations were in order, but he stressed that they should be submissive and should content themselves with just half the Kuru domains and nothing more. The next to speak was a cousin of Balram's, another Vrishni called Satyaki. Satyaki called out Balram on his bias. He even suggested that Balram's words revealed the contours of his inner soul. Satyaki objected to the notion that the Pandavas must meekly beg for what was theirs by right. He even contended that it would be contrary to Dharma for Yudhishthira to beg from the man who stole his possessions. King Drupad agreed with Satyaki. He did not think the Pandavas should meekly bow to their cousin. He said, Speaking gently to the evil-minded Duryodhana is like being kind to a donkey and rough with a cow. Neither will get you what you want. Drupad's advice was for them to negotiate from a position of strength. He suggested they summon the rest of their allies, get a troop commitment from them, and then send a worthy ambassador. He recommended sending his house priest. As for the allies they should summon, Drupad listed the names of no less than 80 kings whom he expected would join up on their side if war should break out. 
Krishna then wrapped up the meeting. While he did not criticize Balram, he fully endorsed Drupad's advice. He agreed that they should summon their allies and then send Drupad's priest as ambassador. Krishna then pointed out that he really was a neutral party in this matter. He regarded the Kauravas as much as kinfolk as the Pandavas. Therefore, he said that they had only come for the sake of the wedding, and now that the wedding was over, he would return to Dwarka. Thus, while Drupad and the other allies stated Upaplavya to commence negotiations, Krishna and his people returned home to await events. As he departed, Krishna said, If the Kauravas make peace like they should, then great. But if, in arrogance and folly, they refuse, then after you have summoned your allies, summon us too. Then the dim-witted Duryodhana will meet his fate for having angered the Gandava bowmen. After Drupad's priest had been credentialed and sent on his way to Hastinapur, a very famous encounter took place. I've been following the critical edition for most of this episode, but its setup for this scene is a little hard to swallow. It says Duryodhana's spies had reported to him the Pandava's doings, and for some unexplained reason he decided to go to Dwarka to visit Krishna. Equally inexplicable, Arjun also departed for Dwarka. I checked the Ganguli version, and they do a much better job of explaining things. It says that the Pandavas had sent messengers all over India summoning their allies. Duryodhana became concerned that Krishna might respond to their call and join up his armies with the Pandavas. The Pandavas also had spies, and they discovered Duryodhana's mission, so Arjun also set out for Dwarka to make a personal appeal. Coincidentally, both men arrived at Krishna's palace at the same time. Krishna was asleep when the two cousins arrived, and Duryodhana sat at Krishna's head, while Arjun remained standing at Krishna's feet, head bowed. When Krishna woke, he saw Arjun at his feet, and then noticed Duryodhana. He greeted both and asked their business. Duryodhana replied with a laugh that they had each come for his support in the coming war, and he, Duryodhana, had gotten there first. It turns out Duryodhana was well-versed in Dharma because he told Krishna that it was his duty to grant an alliance with the first person who arrives to ask. He said, I was the first to come to you today. You know the rules, so you know what you have to do. Krishna said, I have no doubt you got here first, but the first person I saw was Arjun. But I don't want to fight. I want to help both of you. Since Arjun arrived first, he shall choose. You may either have my army and its generals, or you may have me, unarmed, as your advisor. What shall it be? Without a pause, Arjun selected Krishna. Duryodhana was delighted with how things turned out. He had Krishna's armies, and Krishna was out of the war. Before he left Dwarka, Duryodhana looked up Balram. Balram told Duryodhana what had been said at the wedding, and said, For your sake I tried to restrain Krishna, but he didn't listen to me. Since I cannot bear to cross him, I too shall stay out of this conflict. The two men embraced, and Balram said, You were born in the line of the Bhadatas, which is honored by all kings. Go and wage war according to the Dharma of a Kshatriya. This was like one of the happiest days of Duryodhana's life. Krishna was out of the fight, Balram sympathized with the Kauravas, and, as he departed the city, he picked up a large, well-equipped army and led it off to Hastinapur. When Duryodhana was gone, Krishna asked Arjun, why did you choose me when I will not be fighting? Arjun said, I have no doubt that you could kill them all by yourself, but so can I. No, I'm also interested in glory. You are famous throughout the world, and the glory of this war will go to you. I want a piece of that. In addition, I desperately need a good charioteer. Krishna happily agreed to be his charioteer. With this assurance, Arjun also returned home a happy man. While this was taking place, 
King Shalya had already responded to the Pandava's summons, and his immense army was on the march. Duryodhana had a good spy network, so he was able to take countermeasures. What the Karavas did was set up way stations along Salya's line of march, so each night Salya's army was provisioned and the king was generously entertained. This hospitality continued on day after day. Salya had assumed that this was Yudhishthira's doing, so he asked his host to present the man responsible for the hospitality. On cue, Duryodhana appeared. Salya did the honorable thing, thanking his host and offering him a gift, whatever he wanted. Duryodhana asked Salya to be the commander of his army. Salya replied, Well, what else can I do? Very well. Ever true to his word, Salya then continued on to Upaplavia for his meeting with the allies. He arrived at the court, respectfully greeted the kings and princes there, and then told them what had happened and what he had promised. Yudhishthira replied gently, You did the right thing. There really was nothing else you could do, but perhaps you could do us this one favor. Yudhishthira went on to explain that the main event in the coming war would certainly be the chariot duel between Arjun and Karna. Shalya was known as second only to Krishna at the reins, and so they expected Shalya would be asked to be Karna's driver in that final contest. So, Yudhishthira said, please do me this one favor. Please do what you can to throw him off his game. I know this isn't proper really to ask, but please will you do it? Shalya said, sure thing, my son. Before this duel starts, I'll make fun of him and argue with him. I'll get him thoroughly distracted. After what those guys did to you, it is the least I could do to help you out. Having brought up the painful history of the Pandava's exile, Shalya sought to comfort them, saying, Don't fret over those bad old days. Even the gods have their share of troubles. I heard that even the king of the gods, Indra, had a bad experience along with his wife. Yudhishthira loved stories. So even though he was no longer killing time in the woods and had lots of diplomacy and strategy to work on, he still found time to listen to Shalya's story. The story, which is called The Victory of Indra, begins with a character called Tavastar Prajapati, who is described as the best of the gods and a great ascetic. Tavastar Prajapati created a three-headed son whose purpose was to spite Indra. This three-headed freak had three faces that each were busy doing things to rival Indra. One face constantly studied and recited the Vedas, the second drank wine, and the third somehow sucked up the universe. This creature was meek and self-controlled, constantly performing self-mortification and austerities. Its activities attracted Indra's attention. The god grew concerned that this thing might soon rival himself. His solution was to send temptations his way to hopefully distract him from his purpose. Indra's first attempt consisted of sending a troop of beautiful Apsaras to entice him sexually. The ladies obediently did their best to tempt this creature, but to no avail. The Apsaras returned to their boss empty-handed. They suggested he try Plan B. Indra said, Screw it, I'll just nuke him. He then drew out his thunderbolt and hurled it at Tvaster's abomination. At this point, we finally get the boy's name. It says, Hit hard by the thunderbolt, Trishiras fell dead to the ground. Somehow, even though his victim was dead, Indra began burning with a celestial fire which he could not extinguish. There happened to be a yokel nearby who was chopping wood with an axe. Indra said to him, Quickly, man, chop off that beast's head as fast as you can. The woodcutter protested that his axe wasn't big enough to do the job. Besides, desecrating corpses was not in his job description. Indra said, Just do what I've asked. Your axe will be magically endowed, so don't worry about it. The yokel was still reluctant to get involved in this crime scene, so he quizzed Indra some more. He asked, 
Who is this who asks me to do this grisly deed? Impatiently, Indra identified himself, and again urged him on. But the axeman had more qualms. He asked, So, you are the great god Indra, asking me, a nobody, to butcher a three-headed freak on your behalf. Have you no shame? Aren't you concerned about having murdered a Brahmin? Indra was probably getting pretty uncomfortable by this point. He said, You don't worry about that. I'll do some kind of ritual that will clear my record. This guy was a serious threat, so I was acting in self-defense. But he's still causing trouble, so please get busy hacking those heads. I'll do you a favor when you're done. I'll give you one of the heads as your reward. Now, get chopping. Finally, the woodcutter obeyed the god, and he started cutting off the heads. As each head was removed, birds of various sorts flew out of their mouths and necks. When the heads were all detached, Indra was finally relieved of the burning sensation. He rewarded the woodcutter and returned to heaven, once again secure in his post as top god. Tvastar Prajapati was not nearly so content. Indra had killed his creation in cold blood. The god Rishi responded by making a second creature, a monstrous being called Vritra. Tvastar poured all his stored-up ascetic potency into making this monster as powerful as possible. When Vritra was fully formed, its master ordered it to attack Indra. What followed is described as a brutal and protracted battle between the two foes. They spare us all the details of the fight and skip to the end. Vritra opened his mouth really big and swallowed up Indra in one bite. He belched contentedly, and then there was silence. The crowd of gods who had come to watch the fight were stunned at the outcome. They were wondering whether they were supposed to make Vritra their new Indra, or perhaps the thing's creator should be elected. But then Vritra yawned. His yawn was as big as the bite that took out Indra, and Indra was able to jump out of Vritra's gullet. Still feeling beaten, Indra ran away. Hiding with his cronies and priests, they tried to work out a way to defeat this monster. As the helpless and weak of India tend to do, the gods turned to Vishnu for help and protection. Because that's his job, Vishnu agreed to help. He told Indra to arrange a peace agreement with Vritra, and Vishnu would hide out in Indra's thunderbolt, and he would take care of the rest. Indra did as he was told, and sent his priests to negotiate a peace settlement with the gruesome Asura. Vritra was taken in, but remained suspicious. His one condition for peace was that the gods all swear never to attack him, either night or day, with weapons made of wood, metal, stone, or magic, neither wet nor dry. At Vishnu's bidding, Indra and the gods agreed to these terms, and Indra was able to come out of hiding. At some point, Indra found Vritra walking on the beach at sunset. Noticing that at twilight it was neither night nor day, he figured it was an opportune moment. Looking for a legal weapon, the only thing he could find that was neither wet nor dry was the sea foam on the crests of the waves. Trusting in Vishnu, Indra used his thunderbolt to launch sea foam at the Asura as he walked on the beach. Now this was the kind of trick Vishnu loves. He transferred his spirit from Indra's weapon to the sea foam, and thus the weaponized foam did the trick. The Asura of Ritra was killed. All the gods and rishis celebrated the demon's downfall, but Indra could not get it out of his mind that he had only defeated his enemies by crimes and deception. The king of the gods, Chakra, the sacker of cities, grew increasingly depressed. Finally, he allowed himself to sink into the bottom of the sea and refused to come out. It wasn't long before Indra's departure took its toll on the rest of the earth. All the clouds had disappeared and the rain ceased. Soon the rivers dried up and drought burned the land. The remaining gods and rishis began to desperately seek out a new king. 
It turned out the best candidate for the job was the famous ascetic King Nausha. I guess they just assumed we would already know who this is, because we are not giving any background information on this guy. Perhaps we should already know about Nausha, because if you've been listening carefully, his name and some of his adventures have come up before in earlier episodes. This Nausha seems to be the same guy we met in episode 36, Bima and the Snake. Remember, Nausha was the snake. Back in episode 36, we met Nusha while he was a snake. At that time, we were told that Nusha had earned so much merit that he had been somehow elected world emperor. He became a snake when he mistreated Brahmins and even kicked Agastya. It sounds like Shali is providing more details of how Nusha rose to such a high status. As you'll see, we'll also get more details about his fall. Shalya said that the gods and the rishis went to Nusha to anoint him king of heaven. Modestly, the king turned them down, saying he did not possess the power to maintain the dignity of the title. The priests assured him that they could fix that. They gave him the superpower that he could absorb the superpowers of his opponents. I think one of the characters in X-Men had this power. With this assurance, Nahusha accepted the post. Like many of our modern politicians, it says that though before he had always been virtuous, when he took Indra's post he became lustful and lecherous. He began spending all his time in the pleasure garden, hanging out with Apsaras. Things got problematic when Nausha finally got to meet Sachi, Indra's consort. As soon as, he laid on it, as soon as he laid eyes on her, he wanted her to be his own consort. He boldly told her as much, and it sent her running to Indra's priest, Brahaspati. Brahaspati told Sachi not to worry. He said, soon enough, Indra will make a comeback, and Nausha will be out of the way. All this power had clearly gone to the king's head. When he found out that Sachi wasn't interested in him and had conspired with his priest, he angrily ordered his council to present the woman to him. Nahusha's subordinate gods all warned him that he was going too far and should leave Indra's wife alone. But the king cited precedent, showing that in the past, Indra took any woman he wanted, no questions asked. The counselors then went to Sachi and Puraspati and apologetically conveyed the king's demands. Puraspati recommended that the queen obey, but told her to stall for time. Sachi complied and went to Nausha. She told him she would entertain his courtship, but begged him to allow her time to find out Indra's whereabouts. Finding her terms reasonable, the king agreed to wait a bit longer. Making use of this brief reprieve, Sachi, her priest, and the gods went to Vishnu for help. Vishnu explained that Indra was suffering due to the fact that he killed two Brahmins. Vishnu said Indra must first expiate his sins by performing a horse sacrifice. Following that, Nausha must be somehow persuaded or forced to step down. He warned the gods that this might take a while yet. Sachi Indrani then prayed for assistance in finding her husband. Finally, a goddess called Whisper appeared to her and guided her to her husband. Whisper led her to a place beyond the Himalaya mountains to something like a marsh in Siberia. There, they shrank themselves down to a microscopic size and found tiny Indra hiding in a cell in a reed stalk. Indra, feeling down on himself, asked Sachi what she was doing there. Why was she bothering him? His consort reported everything that had happened since his departure and begged him to come back. Indra agreed to the horse sacrifice, but he said he could not depose the new Indra. He simply lacked the power to do it. Indra did, however, have a plan whereby Indrani could lead Nausha to his own downfall. Indra then went off to somehow secretly perform a horse sacrifice, 
while Sachi returned to heaven with her husband's plan. Indrani left straight for Nuhusha. When he excitedly greeted her, she told him she was still waiting on her husband, but she had a great idea for him to display his glory. She said that while Indra rode horses, elephants, and chariots, King Nuhusha should ride a vehicle undreamt of by either Vishnu nor Shiva, nor either Asuras nor Rakshasas. She said, My lord, let all the rishis in heaven carry your palanquin. That will be awesome. Don't settle for being equal to the gods and Asuras. Use your superpower to steal theirs. Go for it, man. No one will dare stop you. Perhaps Nusha was crafting some sort of new caste that was superior to Brahmins, because he just loved this idea. It says he rounded up all the celestial and Brahmin sages and yoked them to his chariot and had them carry him around. Sachi went back to Brihaspati and said, Nausha is not long for this world, so we'd better have Indra back and ready to take his old job. I guess Brihaspati ducked out of the king's priest roundup. He said, Indeed, that vile man will not last much longer. I will make an oblation that will help us find Indra. Then Brihaspati made his fire blaze up and recited the correct spell to discover where the true king of the gods might be. Out of the flames rose Agni, the god of fire, in person. Like a genie on a mission, he flew off in a flash, searching mountains, forests, earth, and sky. After a mere instant, he was back, empty-handed. Agni said, I cannot find the king of gods anywhere. The only place I haven't checked are the waters, because, you know, me and water don't get along too good. So what do you suggest I do now? Brihaspati said, Enter the waters. Agni replied, That would destroy me. Like Kshatriya sprang from Brahmins, iron springs from rock, fire is derived from water. Our powers vanish before our sources. Brihaspati then praised Agni at length for his vital role in the Vedic rites, and then said, Everyone loves their mother, so enter the waters fearlessly. I'll give you a boost with my Brahmin powers. Thus assured, Agni said, I feel better already. I'll get you a chakra, I swear it. With the protection of the Brahmins, Agni entered the various bodies of water, ranging from puddles to oceans, until he finally found the lake where Indra was hiding, in the middle of a lotus fiber. He must have been feeling really, really small. I've eaten boiled lotus root, and the fibers are so small, you sometimes aren't sure they're there at all. Agni returned to Burhaspati and reported what he found. Burhaspati returned there with a company of gods, sages, and Gandharvas. The divine priest then praised Indra at length, and the reminder of his past glory caused Indra to swell up somewhat, but then he stopped. Agni asked, What's wrong with you? Wake up, there's stuff to be done. Burhaspati added, The human king Nausha has taken over. He sucked the powers out of the gods and oppresses us grievously. This talk of a rival revived Indra quite a bit. He perked up and asked, How did Nahusha rise to this rank? As happens so often in the Mahabharata, Burhaspati recounted the whole story of Nahusha so far, in detail. He concluded, His poisonous eye robs our powers. You must never set eyes on him. All the gods are in hiding, afraid Nahusha will emasculate them. As he was telling this story, Kubera, Yama, Soma, and Varuna arrived. They're all cheered to see Indra looking lively. Indra said to these gods, The god King Nusha will be hard to beat. Please promise your help in the coming fight. The gods answered, Dread Nusha is powerful indeed. If you succeed in beating him, we will want our share in the spoils. His back to the wall, Indra agreed to parse out his kingdom. To Kubera, he gave authority of the Yakshas and their riches. To Yama, he gave the underworld. And to Varuna, he gave the oceans. 
it seems that Agni was confirmed in his share of every fire sacrifice. Having signed away this large portion of his domains, the gods held a conference to figure out how to defeat Nahusha. While they were thus occupied, the Brahmin Agastya showed up wearing a big grin. Indra welcomed him and even washed his feet. He then asked the sage for news. Agastya said, I wish to tell you of the downfall of the great King Nausha, who was ousted from heaven. Lord Chakra, listen to the happy news of how ill-spirited Nausha was toppled from heaven. Agastya went on to describe how the Brahmins quickly grew tired of carrying that lout Nausha around, so they decided to test whether he was genuinely their superior. They asked him a question about the Vedas. The question was, the mantras that are used in the sprinkling of the cows, are they authentic or not? Nahusha, cruising high on his priest mobile, answered perfunctorily, What? I don't know. Probably not. The sages jumped on that. They said, Wrong. You don't know Dharma. The mantras are the real thing, and we all know that. Agastya said, While he was arguing with the hermits, this man touched me on the head with his foot. That really pissed me off, so I cursed him to ten thousand years as a snake. Now, Thunderbolt Wielder, return to heaven and protect the worlds. Thus, Indra returned to his old post as king of heaven. Shalya said, Reunited with Indrani, the king of the gods was possessed of perfect bliss and reigned again as king. Thus it was, he continued, that Indra and his consort found trouble and was forced to live in concealment, and so too shall you regain your kingdom. The story of the victory of Indra ends with a classic endorsement. It says that anyone who hears or recites this tale, while their armies stand arrayed, will be sure to triumph. Following the story, the Book of the Effort resumes with the gathering of yet more armies, including Yuyudan of the Satvatas, Drishtaketu of the Chaitis, Jayatsane of Magadha, Jarasan's son, Drupad and Varata. In total, a force of seven grand armies gathered in and around Upaplavya. Duryodhana did even better. His forces included Chinese and mountain tribes, Greeks and Scythians, and South Indian kings. In sum, the Karavas totaled 11 grand armies. It says that the numbers of men were too vast to be fit in Hastinapur, and that the plains of North India were overflowing with Karavya armies. Now, with both sides bargaining from positions of strength, the negotiations could begin. You can bet that the next few episodes will have a lot of diplomacy. That's all for now. Next time the negotiations will begin, with Drupad's priest leading an embassy to Hastinapur. Thanks for listening. <laughs>